I am the non-existent Russian cricketer Pablo Chuckfish, and you are listening to the Cricket Sadist Hour. That is the name of the show. I am Jared Kimber. I am here with my partner, who uh, is famous in World Cups for once having a puppet show with Martin Crow. It's Andy Zoltzman. Hello, yes. That is largely what most people remember the 2015 World Cup for, Jared. Uh, I remember us doing our our... I want to say award-winning, but we never won an award. Well, uh, we would have done an award had there been awards given for what we were doing, yeah. nothing else. Uh, we we had our own show, two men out, and we were outside the ground. And quite often when you're outside the ground, you expect drunken men to come up and yell um, offensive things in your ear. And a large man came up, and I thought, this is going to – and I turned around ready to abuse him, and it was Martin Crow. Yes. Who then asked to speak to your puppet. Yeah, so I'd been doing – we'd been doing Fred and Grace uh, featuring – Little doll of WG Grace and little doll of Fred Spofforth talking about the World Cup, as you do. I believe it's still regarded as one of the most influential pieces of uh, live action animation puppetry, if that is a genre, uh, ever ever committed to film. And uh, yeah, Martin came on. This was maybe an hour after the World Cup final, so yeah. And uh, said, "Where's Fred and Grace?" So he'd obviously been watching watching the videos, and um, he then uh, he, he gave us. 10, 15 minutes of his time. Did he interview WG Grace, the puppet? I remember WG Grace being quite uncomplimentary about New Zealand cricket to Martin Crowe. I remember Spoff, he abused Spoffer every time Spoffer tried to talk to him. <laughs> um, it was a, a beautiful little moment because he, he was terminally ill at the time and he just gave us 15 minutes after the World Cup final, which had been a hugely emotional day for him. He'd been in the New Zealand dressing room and just out of the goodness of his heart and his desire to speak to two puppets. He, uh, he chatted to two puppets for, for a few minutes. And I'm very glad you mentioned Martin Crowe. Actually, I mentioned him, but I'm very, I'm very glad someone mentioned Martin Crowe because this podcast is going to be about great performances in World Cups. And he comes out in the first one, which was accidental, to be fair. <laughs> and, and mostly it's because where my notebook is actually currently open rather than any planning. But Martin Crowe, 1992 World Cup, he made 400 runs, a strike rate of 90, which was ridiculous. That many runs at that strike rate was just like he was starring in porn and and, <laughs> and everyone else was a priest. I don't know what that analogy really means. No. My point is he stood out. He, 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 stood, he stood out. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I don't really want to talk about his batting, although his batting was incredible. That 100 against Australia was beautiful. Yeah, that but, was the opening game, 91 in the famous semi-final against Pakistan as well, off 83 balls, which was space age. Bat- I mean, it was clearly this, the space age had been going on for 30 years. But I mean, almost futuristic batting. Mars age. Mars age. <laughs> so, but it, it's not his batting we want to talk about, although it was brilliant. I want to talk about Deepak Patel. God, if I had a pound for every time I've heard <laughs> someone say that to me. I think it's possible that other than people related to Deepak Patel, no one's ever spoken about him more than I have. <laughs> because Deepak Patel was... A seminal moment in the in the changing way that people play cricket. Essentially, Deepak Patel was a all rounder who had only ever bowled out three times in one day cricket coming into that game. Uh, you're going to tell me he was a specialist bowler and took one million first class wickets. He didn't. He did take over six hundred, but but he, he was not what you think of as an international opening bowler. Definitely, certainly not an international opening bowler for New Zealand. He'd been a part timer, and then. As an off-spinner who didn't really do a lot with the ball, Martin Crowe's just like, go on then, open the bowling. Had anyone opened the bowling, in, any other spinner opened the bowling in the World Cup before him? Yes. Bish and Betty did so 
against New Zealand at Leeds in 1979 in a disastrous World Cup for India. Uh, he took naught for 32 well, off, off 12 overs. Well, that's pretty good. Um, although at the time that was probably, uh, that was probably quite expensive. Uh, that was, <laughs> that was the most expensive World Cup. I oh, sorry, the, the uh, least expensive World Cup. Yeah, just over three and over over the course of the, of the tournament. He opened with Mahinda Amanath, uh, India defending 182 all out against, uh, against New Zealand. So maybe they, they did have the uh, Gavri and Kapil Dev in the team, but they opened with uh, Amanath and Bishan Vedi. But that was the only time in four World Cups, and bear in mind the 87 World Cup had been in Asia, where now we're very used to seeing spinners opening the bowling in all three formats. Uh, but that was the only previous time in a World Cup match Spinner had opened the bowling. Which tells you how weird it was that Martin Crowe did it in New Zealand with a bloke who hadn't been bowling out that, that regularly and also wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like in those days you would look, you can look at spinners now and you go, oh, that Samuel Badry, he looks like he could open the bowling or Michael Beer, he looks like he could open the bowling. There wasn't, there was no template. He just decided that Deepak Patel could do it. So he opened it. It's almost going back to the 19th century, wasn't it? You had, you know, spinners open. And it's interesting, isn't it, with the evolution of limited over cricket? These old skills come out. We talked about 2020 before bringing back more mystery spin, wrist spins, yeah. keeper standing up to the stumps. No, no, you're right. I mean, you know, we're regressing to our <laughs> to our original capitalist uh, early cricket roots. Um, also, oh, Deepak oh. Patel was 33 years old at the time. Was he? Um, yeah, with a fairly undistinguished international career. A bold gambit. He opens the bowling seven times. These are some of, her, some of his figures. One for 28, two for 19, zero for 29, one for 26, two for 25. And uh, I remember at the time being a young boy, and I kept hearing the same thing. I, this is It's only working because it's a surprise tactic. I mean, that's a lot of surprises. I, I feel like at a certain point, there should have been a lack of surprise there. Yes. Well, I think if we learn anything from uh, being in Britain over the past three years, you can surprise yourself by doing the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe that is the surprise. Everyone thought, oh, well, clearly everyone knows about Deepak Patel as an opening bowler. Now they're not going to do it again. And then, bang, there he is. Just also to put it in context, over his whole career, 45 wickets in ODI cricket in 75 matches, average uh, 50, uh, and economy rate 4.17. And in that World Cup, eight wickets, average 30, economy rate 3.1. Lowest economy in the tournament, other than a couple of players who only played one game. Uh, the rest of the tournament went at 4.2. So he's basically 25% under. And there's nothing special about his bowling. He was accurate, you know, a smart sort of nagging seam, a, a spinner, sorry. Very much, you know, an off-spinning version of what Samuel Badgery does. Uh, you know, basically tried, tried to skid the ball through, aimed at the stumps. If you wanted to hit him, you had to play the big shot. And people didn't play big shots that often back then. Now, if Martin Crowe had just been awesome with the bat and just been awesome with Deepak Patel, that would have been enough. But it wasn't enough, was it, Andy? He took it to an, he took it to another level. He used a pinch opener. Mark Greatbatch. It sounds weird calling him a pinch opener. I know there's something quite weird about that. But Mark Greatbatch, who was a fairly handy cricketer, but he, he missed the first couple of games. He usually batted, what, probably three, four, five, six. He, he, he bounced around the middle order a little bit. Quite an attacking player, but he'd never opened before. Um, in that series, he made over 300 runs, averaged 44 at a strike rate of 87. Now, the other openers in that series, Andy, combined went at 3.6 runs and over. He was scoring at 5.2 runs and over. And the first game that Martin Crowe sent him up the order, he made 68 off 60 against South Africa. Fair to say that at both ends of the order, he had a bit of fun, Martin Crowe. Yes. And I, I guess it was a World Cup where one-day cricket started to, well, certainly World Cup cricket 
looked different. So it, the first three World Cups were all held in England, according oh, to obviously. the holy laws of uh, Almighty's use, <laughs> laid down in eternal tablets at Stonehenge. The World Cup should always be in England, and any World Cups that have not been in England have been an aberration. Um, then the 87 World Cup was held in Asia, but still in white clothing, but it came down from 60 to 50 overs, was uh, significantly faster scoring up towards five and over that World Cup. Now, the 92 World Cup wasn't as fast scoring as that. Uh, and in terms of boundary set, a very low percentage of uh, runs in boundaries, partly, I guess, because it was played on large Australian ground in the days before they brought in boundaries because people need to be entertained. <laughs> um, but it coloured clothing. And it was, I think, the unquestioned highlight of the art of the uh, one-day cricket kit was all nine teams basically had the same kit. With different, and it, it was Do you remember like, the photo of them on the on the is it cruise ship or a big? They're on that big ship, and they're all wearing the same uniform. And you just like imagine trying to get all the players in the same place now to take a staged photograph. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. No, no, I think you're right. I think if you look at it, Australia won the '87 World Cup by basically fielding better than everyone else by running better between the wickets, and they took what Javed Meendad had done, which is Javed Meendad's basically the first guy to go. I don't have to hit boundaries. I just have to hit the ball over the guys in the ring's head. He did that. And then Dean Jones took the Javid Meandad um, theory and he matched it with the sort of Bob Simpson running between the wickets. And that was one day cricket for a long time after that. And well, here you've got your first opening bowler as a spinner. You've got your, your first pinch hitters. But Great Batch wasn't even the only pinch hitting opener, but we also had pinch hitters coming up the order at times at that time. So we were starting to work out what one day cricket was and that it was different from four day cricket. Um, both of them also opened the batting, uh, in, in that tournament. How'd he go? <laughs> it didn't go great. He got a 50 against Australia. He opened the batting in all, all the games for England. Now this was both them considerably past peak both them, but still, I don't know. There was an aura that certainly we as England cricket fans, uh, clang to. Clang. Clang seems appropriate when we're talking about pinch hitters. And mishitting balls. Yeah. Because that's the noise most of them made. So, uh, yeah, I guess teams were starting to not think about one-day cricket as just a bit, a little bit of a test match. Uh, and particularly in the early phases, you, you play and then you might have a thrash at, at the end. Sadly for Martin Crowe, by the end of that tournament, it did not go as well. He made, uh, what did you say, it was 91 in the semi-final. Another great innings, not even his best innings of the tournament. But he hurt his knees. But by that stage, his knees were um, make-believe. <laughs> as much as <laughs> it was theoretical. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Martin Crowe decided not to field so he could look after his knees for the final. And uh, obviously they were massively in front in the whole game, New Zealand. And then... Uh, Pakistan came from nowhere, completely won the game, and Martin Crowe never got to play in a World Cup final. And all of his great batting, captaincy, batting orders, and everything that he was involved with uh, meant very little, um, sadly, because of, uh, essentially, Inzaman al-Haq, who you're going to talk about in our next section. Uh, I've just got a, a little bit more on spinners opening the bowling, Jared. It wasn't just only in one World Cup match, but before Deepak Patel in the 92 World Cup, uh, spinners had opened the bowling in one-day international cricket five times. Uh, Bedi in that match. Wazim Raja twice. Um, I don't know. Did he bowl a bit of seam up as well? I'm not sure, but he's categorised. Yeah, bowlers yeah. were categorised as spinners on the uh, Cricket Info. Scott. So a few mixture stroke unknown might have bowled a little bit of tweak. John Bracewell once in a game in 1995. And Akram Raza 
unforgettably taking one for 20 for Pakistan in a game in 1990. But uh, so that shows quite what a revolutionary tactic it was. Well, I think one of Ludwig van Beethoven's greatest regrets was the deafness that afflicted him in later life, which of course meant that he could never listen to the cricket sadist hour. We're going to stick with the 92 World Cup because it's a lot of people's favourite World Cup for many different reasons, um, partly because it's really the first World Cup <laughs> as, much, as much as any. Also the uniforms, as, as we've already discussed, and that picture on the boat. Anyway... We're going to go straight into Pakistan. Uh, you know, Inzaman Alha, Mushtaq Ahmed, Wazamak Ram, without Pakistan really, I think, planning it or thinking about it, what, what they basically came up with was people didn't think attacking spinners worked and suddenly Mushtaq Ahmed was incredible. People didn't really, there weren't that many proper batsmen who batted in the middle order who really went for it. Um, Inzaman Alhaq became that. And then fast bowlers weren't really weapons in the middle of the game. And suddenly you have Wazamak Ram bowling fast, reverse swinging it. And they, they basically did everything right at the back end of the tournament. Yes. After starting famously badly, they'd lost, lost three games early on, were being absolutely demolished by England, uh, in a game, uh, which, uh, they were bowled out for 74. 74. I, I mean, it was, and England were like one for 20, weren't they? Yeah. So bowled out <laughs> for 74 in 40.2 overs. How many wickets did Derek Bringle get? Bringle. Eight, uh, three for eight of 8.2 overs with five maidens. By the way, uh, next week, Tidy. next po- the next podcast we will be doing will be about the history of World Cups. We'll be mentioning that exact same stat. <laughs> uh, both of them two for 12 off 10. Dermot Reeve, one for two off five. So England's, uh, yes. It was vengeance for Madassa Nazar bowling us out in the 1982 Lords Test. Then England were 24 for one from eight overs with 10 extras. <laughs> but, uh. Do you remember how the rain rule worked? Well, at so that the time? rain, the rain rule, uh, came in, uh, it was new for that tournament. And when it rained, um, say you lost 20 overs, you would just knock off the run scored in the 20 lowest scoring overs. That's, uh, that's not Can what... You just correct me, Jerry. No, you, it was... it was Richie Benno would decide on what he thought you should chase. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a ridiculous system. It, it didn't make any sense. Like, for a game that is, like, obsessed... Like, mathematicians are obsessed with cricket in a way that only probably baseball can be. And no one was like... Sorry, uh, sorry, uh, I've just been looking at my, my slide square. Is slide square a thing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> slide rule. And, uh, I think you'll find that that's stupid. Yes. They, they might as well have just conducted some form of necromancy or, um, sacrificed an ox and looked at his entrails and worked out the figure from that. Is that the same as necromancy? I forget. Also, Richie Beto did try both those systems. <laughs> um, so England needed 64 from 16 at four and over, having both Pakistan out for 74. Which was essentially, if you count it as 50 overs, as you do and all that, that's one and a half and over. So, and that highlighted how ridiculous the system was. So England ended up, they would have had quite a tricky run chase had they come back on at 24 for one from eight, suddenly needing 64 from 16 at, at that time. Uh, and in the, of course, in the semi-final, famously South Africa went from needing, was it 20 22 overs off of 13. Then it said 22 off one on the scoreboard, but it was wrong, wasn't it? It was supposed to be 21 off one. <laughs> Um, yeah, the rain rule was quite weird, but but Pakistan did come good. They they came good and spectacular. I mean, they they had to beat New Zealand, I think, in the last group match, and they thrashed them by by seven wickets. And uh, then the the semi final, as we were talking about, was was going New Zealand's way. They made two sixty two for seven, which was a pretty good score for the time. Martin Crowe, we said ninety one off eighty three balls, a fifty for Kenny Rutherford, a couple of wickets for Mushtaq and Wazim Akram. Uh, Imran Khan, 0 for 59 off 10. 
Iqbal Sikander. Remember him? Uh, that's a, a name I can't entirely recall. One for 56 off nine. We're the first people to ever say that name out loud. <laughs> so uh, Pakistan chasing 264 of six. They'd got 140 for four when uh, Inzamam came in. 21-year-old, early in his career. He'd already, already hit a couple of pretty rapid centuries before... Yeah that World Cup. So he was a, a very promising youngster. What was the run rate that they needed, though? They needed a lot, didn't they? Was it? So uh, Pakistan at one point needed 123 from 15 overs. That's 8.2 per over, which was yeah almost unheard of in those days. Martin Crowe's off the ground with his knee iced up, you know, had me a pina colada. I don't know what he drank. Um, by the time I met him, he was pretty much a teetotaler. Um, but, you know, the New Zealand are thinking they've won this, and Inzi comes in, and let's be honest, there was no real reputation with him other than the fact that John T. Rhodes had run him out and everyone had laughed at him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, had, he scored some runs before the World Cup. I don't know had a massive tournament in the World Cup. Done a few useful little innings. He hit 60 off 37 balls, <laughs> um, reaching his half century in, in 31 uh, deliveries, one of the fastest in World Cup history at the time. He had an 87 in 10 overs with Javid Mindad, and when he was out, run out, um, Again, uh, not for the first or last time. They needed 36 from five. Um, and then uh, Moeen Khan hit a quick 20 and uh, Javed unbeaten on 57 at the end. And that was Pakistan into the final after uh, starting the tournament in chaos. And then, and then in the final. So it was basically Mushtaq Ahmed helped them all the way through the tournament. But in, and then uh, it was obviously Inzi sort of got them into the, the final itself. But it was, was a macram in the final. Do you remember that at all? I, I do remember. I was watching it at a, at a, at a friend's house. Through that, it would have been really late at night, wouldn't it? It would have been basically overnight back in England. Yeah, yeah. It certainly would have been after midnight, you would have thought. And, uh, well, the two famous deliveries that Wazzy Macron bowled when, when England played pretty well. Again, Pringle could have been, I mean, he was on course for being man of the match in the World Cup final. Took, what, three for 30 odd in the, in the. He still claims he had an LBW turned down, um, at one stage that was absolutely plum as well. That well, have... yeah, dodgy LBW decisions have cost England. At least two, possibly eleven World Cups, <laughs> I think. Um, and Just keep coming across umpires. <laughs> so, and England had a, England had a pretty strong one-day team. They, this was the fifth World Cup. They'd lost two finals and uh, reached a semi-final in the other two of the first uh, the first four in the final again. And bear in mind, since then we've not reached a semi-final and didn't even reach the Super Sixes of the tournaments that had Super Sixes. This was very much the end of the first golden era of English one-day cricket. And by golden, given that they never won it, silver. Let's call it the, sil- the silvery era. They couldn't win it when they basically invented the format where coming into the first World Cup, England had played more than half the one-dayers. They, they played five-sixths of the one-dayers. They played 15 out of 18. And I think that's including some games that have been rained off. Basically, England had played... There'd only been three one-day matches not featuring England by the time of the 75 World And they also had domestic one-day competitions, which I don't think... No, but that was the big mistake England made, was letting people from other countries play. <laughs> <laughs> now, we might talk about this in, a, in, a, in, in the, next, uh, the next show, but uh, the influence of county experience in those early World Cups was absolutely vast. Uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, back to the 92. England had a, had a decent side, other than the fact that their pinch hitter couldn't hit the ball off the square. <laughs> yeah, but they had Gooch, Alex Stewart, Graham Pick, Neil Fairbrother, Alan Lamb uh, in the top six, along with uh, along with both, and then Chris Lewis, Dermot Reeve, Pringle, Defratus, and Richard Lingle. So a very deep batting lineup, uh, varied, uh, you know, decent bowling uh, 
bowling lineup. And they were going well in that final. Yes. Uh, Pringle three for 22, in fact. Did him a disservice saying three for 30 odd. Uh, he got out Armour Sahel and Ramiz Raja early on. Imran Khan made a steady 72. Me and Dad 58 off 98. Then Inzamam again, 42 off, off 35. And some rapid runs. Wazim Akram 33 off 18. Took them up to 249 for six off, off 50 overs. That Akram innings is really important. I yeah, remember that. Which, uh, again, seems like nothing in the modern era of, uh, of one day cricket, but it made it, I guess, a defendable total for a yeah. team with, uh, uh, the bowlers that Pakistan had. So, uh, England made not a great start. 69 for four in the great English tradition of collapsing in important World Cup games, which was something that England have done done tremendously well the f- they don't get the credit they deserve the 75 world cup in the semi-final against australia after they'd waltzed through the group stages 52 for eight and then uh, i think it was 93 all out and then the 79 final they lost their last eight wickets for 11 runs so it was a great tradition for england but anyway 69 for four not quite in that category but then alan lamb and neil fairbrother had rebuilt the innings going at a decent decent pace got up to 141 for four so they added 72 and then wazim akram bowled Two of the, the most unplayable deliveries in the his, entire history of cricket. Let's go that far, Jared. How many deliveries have been bowled in all levels of all cricket since the beginning of time? Uh, I don't know, but uh, Chris Lewis got an inside edge on one. I'm saying it's not the most unplayable delivery for Chris Lewis. <laughs> the first one was pretty good, though. The first one to Alan Lamb went, I mean, it went at least eight different directions, didn't it, before it hit his stumps and then... It, it broke the land speed barrier, yeah. It, no, it was out there. Look, it was, you know, left arm around the wicket angled in, took the top of off. Alan Lamb looked confused. He probably has to talk about it every day of his life since because he, basically his life now is being Alan Lamb. <laughs> and that's all that anyone remembers. Pretty good one-day cricketer, but that's all that anyone remembers. So England were then basically up against it, 141 for six, and uh, never really recovered, despite Derek Pringle, 18 off 16 balls. Utterly heroic. Well, but but Akram, so he, he comes on, it's in the middle overs, the ball's reverse swinging, uh, he only ends up, he ends up with three for 40. Three for 49. Yeah. So he was expensive as well, but that, that was the first time that I think we started looking at seamers taking wickets in the middle overs. Also reverse swing in one day cricket wasn't as big a factor before that tournament. It's quite interesting looking back how many things that Pakistan got right in, in that 92 world cup, despite the fact that they had clearly no idea what they were doing for most of the first half of the tournament. So some of that is natural skill, but also obviously Imran Khan and, you know, the whole thing about him, you know, we're going to play like cornered tigers. Have you ever seen the video where he says it to Ciappelli? He's sort of play like cornered tigers. He's, he's not roaring. <laughs> but just imagine, Jared, how different the world would be now if only Alan Lammer got a bat on that ball from, from Wazim Akram. He'd be the, he'd be the president of Pakistan. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying, Der- I'm saying Derek Pringle would be prime minister of, uh, of the United Kingdom. Cause clearly, whichever all rounder proved decisive in that World Cup final was going to end up leading their country. It's one of those sliding doors moments for all humanity. I mean, how different would Brexit be going if Derek Pringle was prime minister? We could only speculate. Mushtaq Ahmed in that tournament, 16 wickets, average uh, 19, economy rate just under four. Andy. Abdul Qadir had been basically the only successful leg spinner previously in uh, in World Cups. He'd taken 12 wickets in each of the previous two World Cups, uh, decent low 20s averages and uh, economy rates under under four as well. So for Pakistan, leg spin had been an important factor, but no other team had really jumped onto that the mystery spin wagon at that point. I want a ticket on the mystery spin wagon. <laughs> 
hereby find the defendant guilty of an insufficient interest in cricket. I sentence you to be taken from this place to another place where you will be forced to listen to the cricket sadist hour until you be dead. Next player who actually reminds me a lot of you physically, um, emotionally, certainly in raw masculinity, yeah. Lance Klusner. Yeah, he's in a pod. So 99 World Cup, he was... Phenomenal. If I, I think I can't re- actually read my notes, but I think my notes say here. Is that because they're sustained with tears of respect and admiration? It, exactly. Uh, I don't think he went out in the first six times he batted. One of those might have been did not bat. I can't tell from my notes here. Um, but he only went out twice in the entire tournament. In fact, at the first part of the tournament, he'd already had a few unbeaten innings before that coming into the World Cup. And he ended up with 400 runs in between dismissals, which at the time was a record. It's since been surpassed twice, most recently by Fakhar Zaman. Oh, I thought you were going to say Virat Kohli every time he plays. But, um, <laughs> so in that tournament, he averaged 140. He was only out twice, so 280 runs, but at a strike rate of 120. Also, he took 17 wickets at 20 bowling. He did, yeah. Um, the tournament strike rate for batting was 64, right? Yes, it was a very much a bowler's tournament. He doubled Yes. He doubled the strike rate. And it was a bowler's tournament, and he batted at 3, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Why he was batting at nine, I don't know. But he batted everywhere. He was scattered out. As you said, he bowled. I'm going to say at that time, he was probably the best one-day cricketer that had ever existed. I think Viv Richards was better over a long period of time. But as far as the ability to bat and bowl, and also he had a huge arm in, uh, in from the field, I think he was probably, for maybe two or three years, the peak one-day player. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure we've had anyone better since then, to be fair. But for that period, I think he's one of the most underrated players. I think if you're picking your best ever one-day players, you probably have Viv Richards, Joel Garner, Glenn McGrath, Emma Stoney, Virat Kohli, A.B. De Villiers. If he's not the next name that you would say, I- I'd be shocked. You're putting him above Mark Elam. I'm just putting him ahead of Mark Elam. He's, to be fair, though... I cannot accept that as a Kent fan. Just behind Gary Gilmore. Right. <laughs> um, but I think he was... Gary in- Gilmore... <laughs> 11 wickets in the semi-final and final of 1975. Only played one more, one international. Didn't he also hit 30 off 30 in one of those games? I think, I think well. he did. He had an incredible, like, two games of, of one-day cricket. And he had a five-match ODI career. But Klusner was the, the Gilmore of 99, but played more. So we've talked about this. He was the fourth leading wicket-taker as well. He wasn't just a wicket-taker. He was the fourth leading wicket-taker. He only scored 52. That was his top score. So it was all... 30s, 20s, 40s. It was incredible. And, yeah, consistent, fast end of innings runs. Yeah, a, a strike rate of 120. He also invented scoring off Yorkers. Up until that 99 World Cup, no one scored off Yorkers. Maybe the odd squeeze from Michael Bevan in the 47th over is what you get sometimes. You, you get Ranatunga or Michael Bevan would open the face to the odd Yorker. Klusner destroyed Yorkers like they were just a normal ball. He had a bat that must have weighed... Well, almost as much as he did. He didn't look like a normal batsman at all, did he? He was also the first player to do range hitting. We do that in cricket all the time now. People just sitting there hitting the ball as hard as they could. He did that. I just think that he was, I, I would say he could have opened the batting if he wanted to. I don't think he ever did. I think he batted three a lot. But he basically could bat anywhere from, from zero to seven. And he was a genuine wicket taker. Just an incredible, incredible player. In the form of his life, we'd never seen a one-day cricketer like that before, and he ends up in absolute ridicule by the end of the tournament. Yes, it was rather rather <laughs> cruel, wasn't it? That, as you said, he'd 
almost been redefining what one day cricketers could do, and yet he ends up messing messing up the big the big moment. Essentially, it was. I mean, that's obviously one of the most famous games of cricket ever played in one day cricket or any other format. Uh, 213 all tie in the semi-final. Australia went through to the final because they had a better Super 6 record. And they beat South Africa in the Super 6 and they had a better net run rate. But yeah, but he's like, the rest of South Africa, basically absolute abject failure. Like they, from the moment Warren first came on, I think they were number 40, they looked good. From that moment on, they were trickling forward. It was Klusner who, who stood up. And even as they were losing wickets, I remember he was smashing the ball. He hit one ball to long on. Up until that point, I still think it was one of the, the like most muscular shots I've ever seen. It, it, I feel like it went through Paul Rifle to go for six. Well, I, that was a penultimate over, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. But see, I remember Rifle coming in and off off the boundary a bit. Basically, he seemed to misjudge it, and what should have been a catch. Not only did he drop it, but he palmed it up over the boundary. So it would have been if he just left it, it would have been four. <laughs> yep. A lot of people talk about South Africa choking. In, in various World Cups. But I think Australia choked in that game hard, but they got away with it because it was a simul choke. Both teams, as much as we can say teams choke, I think it's kind of thrown around a bit much. Clearly, there was huge nerves and huge tension on both sides because you had Klusner, you say, best player of the tournament, an almost flawless tournament with bat and ball. Nine to win off the last over. Damien Fleming, outstanding one-day bowler. Pretty much two half volleys outside off that right in his hitting zone. Pounded for four. Exactly. Four balls to get one run. So no rush. No rush for someone who, as you said, scored 120 strike rate in a, in a low scoring tournament. First ball hits it to mid on. Darren Lehman misses a simple run out. Yep. But also the panic on that one where it's just like, you've got three balls left, guys. Settle down. Then learn from that mistake by doing exactly the same thing. The next ball, Alan Donald charges down the wicket, drops his bat. This time Australia managed not to balls up the run out. We did. Alan Donald only charged the second time. He charged more, didn't he? The first time he didn't know what he was doing. But also, it's like they hadn't had a conversation. So the conversation should have been something along the lines of, we've got three balls. I'm going to try and whack the ball really hard for two of those because I'm Lance Kluzer and I've been whacking the ball all tournament long, right? And then off the last one, if that doesn't work, if I fail to whack, let's run. But instead, they sort of half thought they were going to run, like they'd had two different conversations with each other, and then there was the run out. So I just think that tournament, Lance Kluzner was just, he was a beast. I don't think I've ever seen a player that good in a World Cup before, and I, you know, hopefully we'll see one again in the future. But by far and away, the, the best player in a World Cup that I've ever seen. And, and in that innings, before those two final balls, he did 31 off 14. And again, it had been a low-scoring game. Two thirteen plays two thirteen. So, uh, in terms of uh, deserving to win, but ultimately <laughs> playing a part in your team failing to win, it was a uh, quite an extraordinary little moment. Well, as the great Sir Gabby Allen used to say, never put a pickled beetroot in a jockstrap. The cricket greatest hour. Uh, that is the end of this podcast. We're looking forward to the World Cup. Andy is currently in preparation. He's wearing a purple um, spotted shirt in homage to the N- Dutch shirt of the 2007 World Cup, <laughs> uh, I believe. Anyway, uh, please subscribe to the podcast, share it, do all the good things that you do. Andy will say something now. Yeah. Oh, don't just share it. You know, Remember it and recite it to strangers on buses. That's the best way to get these things out and about, isn't it, Jared? I'm a bit behind the 
behind the curve. That's exactly how social media works, Andy. You've nailed <laughs> it as usual. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.